Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I would really appreciate you hitting that like button, commenting, sharing, and subscribing. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I would really appreciate a five-star review. Now, we've got an absolutely tremendous guest here today. Andy, it's amazing to see you. Thank you very much for having me here. Absolutely. So Andy, for those out there who don't know much about you, if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your career highlights and your back. So my name is Andy Champion. I currently lead high spots business here in EMEA. I've got about 20 years in software sales. I've been part of the MarTech revolution. I'm now part of the sales tech revolution. And in between, I uh, spent time with a little bit of business called DocuSign. Probably many of the listeners have actually used the technology to sign a flat, rent a flat, get a mortgage, whatever it might be. I didn't start in sales. Like many people, sales was not at the top of my bucket list when it came came to careers. After I left university, I actually went into the army. And we might touch upon that as we go through. But 20 years later, it served me pretty well. And I look back with some very, very fond memories. And I look forward with high hopes for the future. Wonderful. Well, we've got a lot to dig into there, Andy. Two decades and a start in the army. So I want to double tap on that army piece first and foremost. How and why did you get into it? And tell us a bit about the early years. So for me, I always loved sport. I've always loved being outside. I've always loved physical challenges. And I went to Loughborough University. I studied human biology, but I really went there for the rugby. Let's be honest, right? I did 20 hours a week in my first years of study and about 40 hours a week playing rugby. So that kind of gives you a, a feel for what drew me there. But I loved it. And there was a natural, I think, combination for that physical draw, along with I have a very deep sense of duty and some things I think are worth voting for, investing your time in. And for me, that drew me into the military. I went to Santos straight from university. I was about 20 years old. I didn't know left from right. I didn't know my ass from my elbow. I spent seven months there. And then after seven months in Sandhurst, I spent three months in Warminster. And then pretty much I was straight into Northern Ireland. And this was Northern Ireland in the early 90s before the peace. And so it was a very real environment. And my first role, I was in charge of 30 guys. I was in the infantry, so it was all men. And I was very, very lucky. And I look back on this with very fond memories. I had a platoon sergeant called Howard Lysett, Sergeant Lysett. And we hit it off from the start. I remember the first conversation that I had with him in the guy's barracks. We were sat on one of the beds and I said to him, Sergeant Lysett, I need your help. I want to learn to be a fantastic leader. And right now I need to look to you to help guide me on that path. And he said, boss, I got you. And I'm very happy to say for the next few years, he took me under his wing. He taught me a lot about leadership and I'm indebted to him to to this day. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, I think I could almost spend the whole episode just expanding on this. But there's a point that really stands out for me because I don't I've never been in the army or been in any of the military services. But I've read a book by Jocko Willink called Extreme Ownership. And that was where I started to almost fall in love with the, the mindset that a lot of people that I've come to realize have some kind of military or Navy background or something of that nature. So I want to know for, for Andy, what are the core lessons, the core principles that you you've carried forward into your personal life and professional life from those days. So I think there's a a couple and maybe this will appeal to, to different elements of your audience. I think the first one as a leader, 
Let me, let me maybe start there. As a leader, one of the things I learned very quickly was that respect is earned and it's earned over a period of time. It's not a one-off event. It's about consistency. It's about doing the right thing without hesitation, without fear, without favor. And sometimes that includes making the tough decisions. In fact, sometimes making the easy decisions can actually erode respect. And respect is super precious. It takes a lifetime to earn it and a moment's folly to lose it. So that'd be the first thing, never compromise. And then I think the second one really just as a person is that the, some of the best things in life are not easy. And therefore, not everybody can actually get to that. But the reality is that most people can get to it with deliberate practice, with persistence, right? You don't get to, a, to be an Olympian overnight. You don't get to be a concert-level pianist overnight. It takes work every single day, a fraction of a fraction of a percentage improvement every day over a period of years will help anybody achieve greatness. And I think that's true in life. And I know it's true in sales. It's incredible. Really, really fascinating. So there's a point in which you've been there for around six years from what I gather, you've then moved on. So bring us into that moment where you decided that you wanted to step out and actually how you went about your decision making for what would come next. Yeah, so I left the army in September, 1996. At the time, I'd commanded around about 120 men in, in Northern Ireland. I'd had some fantastic roles. The last stint was actually driving recruiting for my regiment, which is interesting because when I came out, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I really struggled with communicating to potential employers what my skills were. I understood logistics. I understood planning. I understood how to inspire people, I think. But how do you convey that through a CV? When an employer gets your CV and all they see is six years in the army and nothing relevant to that individual role that you might have applied for, most of them move you to whatever pile is, thank you, but no thank you. And I really struggled. I really struggled. I ended up after a few months getting a job in sales recruitment. Wasn't at the top of my list wasn't even remotely in my mind as I left the military. And my first job was I had a phone, I had my desk, and I had the Compass directory. This is 1996. There is no internet. There is, there, you know, that you, you can't go onto Google. You can't go onto LinkedIn and understand who the stakeholders are that you need to target. You literally had a list of company names and a phone number, and you called, and you spoke to whoever the receptionist was or whomever answered the phone, and you asked to be put through to the sales director because I worked for a sales recruitment company, and my job was making $100 a day. That was my metric, my one and only, well, actually not my only metric, but that was the, the daily metric that I that I had to work to. And you know what? If I got in the office early, I also got to get the, the job sections out of the local papers before anybody else did. And it, it taught me a little bit of discipline. It taught me that there, there, there were certain behaviors that would drive towards success, and there were other behaviors that might, might actually hold you back from that. And so it was, a, it was a pretty interesting time. The other lesson I learned, unlike in the military, where you have implicit and explicit trust with all of those around you, where everybody's watching your back because you're watching their back, that wasn't the case in recruitment. In some cases, people would almost crawl over you you know, to get that opportunity or whatever it might be. So that was a bit of a lesson for me as well in terms of there's a different dynamic going on there. And, uh, and that took a little bit of time to adjust, adjust to as well. 
but I enjoyed it. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a really an, an interesting transition from you because you've come out of the army, you've gone into a role you said you didn't expect. It must have been a little bit of a reality shift, I guess, for you in certain regards. One of the things I'm curious to get your perspective on, though, Andy, is when we look at this current modern era, if we want to call it that, versus that time that you were in, as you say, you had a phone you had a directory and really just a will to win to go and make it happen. We're now in an area that's very tech first. You know, people are, are leading with email. They're leading with many different approaches. And some people argue that actually the phone and just sheer grit of running at your role, that's become a little bit more neglected. So in all of that, I just want to get your perspective on the, let's say, the the old school way of approaching things versus the new school, whether you feel that actually the modern era should be taking certain ingredients from the experiences that you went through? I don't think it's as simple as saying one is right and one is wrong. I think if you're really smart, you will take different things from, to use your phrase, different eras, and you'll try it. And if you're really smart, you'll measure and you'll look at what's working and what's not working. So, hey, if everybody's doing email outreach, how are you going to stand out from the crowd? How is your email with no context prior to that email arriving in somebody's inbox, how is that going to stand out and resonate with your targeted individual? You've got five seconds, probably three, before that email is ignored, deleted, or responded to. Really hard. And if everybody's email on email, what opportunity have you got to pick up the phone? What opportunity have you got to use a different medium that might not be the phone? How about you handwrite a letter to that person? How about you understand maybe some events that they are going to and you take the time to perhaps go along to those events? Now, that might be a bit of an extreme, and the problem with some of that is it doesn't scale. But part of this is not about a numbers game. You can work as hard as you want, but in sales, we're measured on output, not input. So I think working smart, trying different things, being prepared to fail at different things because in every failure is a lesson and if you're not failing in some of what you do you're probably not pushing the envelope so i would say try different things if everybody's on email go somewhere else because it's going to be really really hard to stand out if you're just one of a of a crowd of a thousand adrs sdrs bdrs sellers right do things differently Absolutely. I, I love the way that you frame that actually, Andy, because there's so much talk in this era about what's the best channel? Should I be picking up the phone or doing video? And which one do I need to focus on? And, you know, I often say to people, you know, don't, don't specifically think about the channels. Think about the outputs that you're trying to drive. And a bit like you say, try things out, experiment, measure your results, figure out what's working and then double down and then, you know, move out the things that aren't working for you instead of getting so caught up in the, What's the, the latest, greatest channel for me to focus on, right? Yeah, the reality is, if you're looking for a silver bullet, you're probably going to be looking for a very long time. 90% of the time, they don't exist. So stop looking for the silver bullets. That's a mic drop moment right there. <laughs> I love it. So let's zoom right back into your, your story here. So you, you've been in recruitment for a certain period of time. At some point, you've transitioned out of that. So just bring us into that moment now. Yeah, so I uh, I got promoted from from doing the dialing to into a hybrid role, as a net new role. So I actually was doing my dialing, finding my own vacancies, and also sourcing candidates. Quite a step up for me. I was interviewing salespeople with, you know, sometimes fifteen years of experience as a 
27-year-old guy that was like 12 months into his career. Really interesting, but but really fascinating. Fast forward, I found myself my first field sales job. It was back into the roots of human biology. I've always been fascinated about physiology and anatomy, how the body works. And my first job was working for a company called Falls Fitness. I was their field sales rep selling um, high-end fitness equipment, uh, Cybex and Reebok, into gyms across the southwest of the of the UK. So I literally had my car, I had a list of gyms, and I would go around and I would meet managers, uh, I would meet operators of different chains. And my goal was to sell a whole bunch of fitness equipment. Wow, that's, that's pretty fascinating, actually. A lot of what's interesting about your early days is just the pure simplicity, right? There was a moment you had a phone and a list, go and make it happen. Now you've got your car, a list of gyms, go and make it happen. What were the lessons that you took from those early experiences being at the gyms, actually having to to go out there, meet people, make it happen? What was starting to add to your game as you were starting to work towards this pretty remarkable career that you've had so far that we'll lean into? So step into into the frame, my, one of my second, I'll call him a mentor, right? Sergeant Lysett, we spoke about Hillis Lake. Hillis was an American. He was over here on secondment and re- again, another exceptional human being. And one of the things Hillis taught me, he would talk about oftentimes when a seller goes into a, a sales situation, they throw candy on the table. They throw sweets on the table and they wait to see which one of those sweets their buyer picks up. Or imagine licorice all sorts and and I throw the whole pack on there and you pick out the ones that you like and you, you know you you ignore the the ones that you don't like and Hillis's point was don't just throw the candy on the table take the time to uncover and discover what the buyer likes what is it they're looking for what are they trying to solve for what is it that they need and that discipline was drummed into me right from the start so I didn't throw the candy on the table. I would always take time to get to know the individual, whether they were a gym manager on the floor, whether they were a center manager, whatever it was, and spend time to build a relationship to understand where they were on their journey and where we might be able to help them move forward with the goals that they might have for that fitness center address a piece of equipment that was constantly breaking down and causing members to have deep, deep frustrations. So so that, I think, is a lesson that sticks with me to this day. It's a really valid point. Don't throw candy on the table. Take the time to uncover what your buyers, because usually nowadays, right, we're talking to many people, understand what are their personal drivers, what are their business drivers, and how can you as a salesperson support them in achieving their goals? If you do that, you're going to win in the long term. Absolutely. Yeah, very, very well articulated. I, I'm i looking forward to getting into the SaaS part of your career and some of the other leadership roles, but I'd be remiss not to spend a bit of time on your stance on really what constitutes A players within this space. I think you're in all of that talking about phenomenal discovery, you could say, right? Leading with curiosity and more. But for you, Andy, what actually goes into the characteristics of an elite level, I say SaaS seller, but ultimately salesperson? We could spend hours on that. Let me try and distill a couple of things down. I think the first one is, I'm going to go back to the concept of discipline and deliberate practice. None of us get good at what we do at the first time we come out of the blocks, right? My first sales meeting, my first calls as a, as a recruiter, I mean, gosh, I made so many mistakes, right? R- mistakes that I look back on and, and you know, you, you just have to laugh at it. But I was doing my best based with the knowledge that I had and the skills I had at that time. 
And so, but here's the thing, the more you practice, the better you get. The more you go out and run, the fitter you get. So just get out there and run every day, practice every day, try different things. Always seek that fraction of a percent that you can improve. And a lot of that is going to come from your own, what I call deliberate practice. The second thing I would say is, and this is something I would tell myself if I could go back 20 years, I did not do this soon enough in my career, and I regret it to this day. Find some mentors. Mentors are all around us. And it doesn't have to be a formal relationship. It can just be a conversation. I spoke this morning with a guy that I've hired twice that is now leading a team of 50 people and is hugely successful. What he has achieved in his career, I'm just in total awe of. And, you know, look, we've talked throughout our former relationships and and, uh, we've talked since. And often he'll come to me for advice. And do you know what? I'm now going to him for advice. So seek out mentors. Seek people who you can speak with, who can give you a different view. It doesn't mean that they're right. It just means that you will have different perspectives and a richer source of data from which to make your your decisions. And there is nobody more important. This is my third point. There is nobody more important to you as an individual contributor than your first line manager and probably their manager. Choose them with care. When you're out there, if you're interviewing, interview them, understand from them and get precise examples from their current work, how they are developing their people and just test to see how committed they are because life's a lot easier when you've got a manager on your side. Life's a lot easier when you've got people that will invest in you and help you develop your careers. It tends to go an awful lot quicker. And then there are other things that you touched on in terms of you know curiosity. I think curiosity is one of those things. It's really hard to teach somebody that natural, innate, sort of childish sort of inquisitiveness that we all have. And, you know, through much of our adult life, we we learn how to, we we almost learn behaviors that, that move us away from that. So going back to that natural childhood curiosity that we've all got in terms of how does that work? Why is that important? Tell me more about that. I think curiosity is the other big thing that I would, that I would pull out. I love it. I mean, some people might be wondering if you've got 60 minutes in an interview, right? How do you tease some of these things out to really understand, have I got a megastar on my hand? Have I got a future leader on my hands? Have I got a future record setter on my hand? So I just love to get your perspective on how much of this is instinctual in terms of looking at the person across from you and knowing actually if you've got that future superstar on your hands versus how much of this is just very scientific, logical, set questions that give you a set answer Please share your perspective. I I don't ever go into an interview either as an interviewee or the interviewer with a with a with a script. I, I I don't find that effective. What I find very effective is almost like today, letting the conversation flow because an interview is a is a two way discussion, right? When done well, the interviewee is interviewing the interviewer as much as the other way around, right? They're trying to figure out. Is this a good place for me to take my career? Can I trust you as a manager? Are you somebody that's going to help and support and, and you know, have my back when things get tough? And as an interviewer, you're kind of asking the same thing, right? Uh, Ollie Sharp, we were talking before this. I thought the way he described that implicit contract between manager, you know, the hiring manager and the employee, I thought was really, really powerful. And that really resonated for me because you are going into business together. 
whether you realize that or not. Because as a leader, you can only succeed when your people succeed. And that, you know, is a real, real bond of trust. What do I always look for? I'm looking for that innate curiosity. I'm looking for somebody with a high level of, of, of EQ. And that's a bit gut. It's a little bit. It's how are they turning up? How prepared are they? But there's also a very scientific element there. I'm going to probe and explore for examples on how they work. I'm going to ask them for recent examples of how they've driven deals, how they are prospecting, how they are qualified. I'm going to probably ask them to walk me through the, the deal that they're most proud of. And I'm probably going to ask them to talk me through a recent learning experience where perhaps everything didn't go quite right. And I find that by doing that, by asking for practical examples, rather than theoretical, what would you do if you landed on the moon and you had no oxygen? That's a, a vacuous question, right? When you ask people, how do you do that? Tell me more about that. And you get practical examples. It's very, very insightful in terms of how they work and if they're going to fit well within your environment. Wonderful. So if anyone out there wants to work for Andy, you now have the blueprint right in your hands. That, that's awesome. Breakdown. Andy, we've got to spend some time on you as a leader and also what constitutes great leaders. Before getting there, I want to understand more about your transition from being out in the field after the army to your first step into leadership outside of the army because you'd led big teams. But what was it like actually making that same kind of transition now that you're actually in the, the sales space? It was hard. It was really hard. And I think, you know, there were some simple mistakes that, that I should have known better than to than to allow happen and some of that was around being prepared to take the tough decisions walking that line between being having a good level of camaraderie with your team but without getting too close you know because the reality is there are some times when you've got to have a little bit of distance but you can't have too much distance because then the chemistry starts to starts to you know break down so i think in my early career i didn't i struggled a little bit with that with, with that you know when when did i need to you know be be more formal with people and when could i afford to relax a little bit and, and open up because we all want to work for leaders that inspire us we all want to work with leaders that are humble that are compassionate that are open but we also want to work for leaders that are going to be prepared to make the tough decisions right because quite often in leadership right it's not that there is a very clear best choice and worst choice Often you're trying to work with the least worst decision because there is no good decision. So I think, you know, that for me, and I did this when I stepped, in, I'd stepped into leadership with a company called Alchemetrics. They were a, a marketing database company. This is before email. Yes, I am that old, right? This is when people, companies used to send out uh, magazines and brochures in the post, right? Quoni, I remember the Quoni global travel brochure that they sent out cost eight pounds to send. And they found through analysis that people would simply sign up and ask to be sent, uh, ask to be sent it, so they could put it on their their coffee table in their lounge, so that when the neighbours or whatever came around, it's like, oh, you're looking at Coney Go, but you know that was high end travel, none of them ever booked. So it, you know that 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 always that always struck me. But you know that was my first exposure to to leadership. It was a relatively small company. We're doing a couple of million dollars of, of of turnover, and that also gave me a little bit of insight into sort of board level leadership as well. So dodging a few business bullets rather than physical bullets. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. I lo- love that. Love these breakdowns. I feel like there's a going down memory lane a little bit here, Andy, which is which is great fun. So there's a certain point in which you started to work your way towards, let's say, these more hyper growth type of organizations where the pace is fast, right? The expectations are, are rich. Attrition can sometimes be higher just in terms of the tenures that we typically see both from reps and also from leaders. So I'd love to hear your experience when you maybe took that first step into an organization that had that additional level of pace, maybe needed something a little bit more from you than you were used to historically. Yes, it was a company called Responses. And the guy that hired me was an American called Jeff Lundell. And there were nine people in the UK at the time. We were 270 people worldwide. We IPO'd. And then after that, a couple of years later, we got acquired by Oracle, at which time we were well through 100 million and, and you know, I think about 1,500 people worldwide. So quite a journey. Disruptive technology in the marketing technology space, predominantly around email, but then broadened out into other channels as well. And it taught me a, it taught me a huge amount. When I joined, I literally was joined to reset the sales organization. For the first three months, I was out there on the road driving the sales myself while I was recruiting a team. Built that team out over time, took the business into Germany. That was really hard. It's a very different kettle of fish. Took the the business into the Nordics through a joint venture. And then ultimately, as I said, we, we got acquired into the Oracle Marketing Cloud a few years later. Quite a premium, but very fast paced. What was the toughest part of all of that? I know you say very fast pace. You were in Germany. You had all of these things going on. What was the the most challenging part of that aspect of your career? I think that as I look back, it was it, it was really understanding how to work in a remote environment, right? Where headquarters was eight hours behind and five or six thousand miles away and how to communicate effectively to get the support you needed how to influence others whilst also doing the day job and keeping the numbers coming in right with two different disciplines there in terms of how do you work effectively to support and empower your people to drive the revenue to win the clients you know we want some fantastic clients like Coney, like john lewis some incredible results that the team achieved there but then how do you make sure that headquarters is with you every step of the way how do you make sure that you're constructing really effective arguments because of course for a global company that company can invest a dollar here in europe and get a certain return probably less as was with the responses than that if they invest a dollar in the US where they're much more established they're probably going to get a more immediate return so how do you how do you navigate that conversation to make sure you get the support you get the investment into the region that was my first time doing it and it stretched me yeah, no, I can imagine it's, it doesn't sound like an easy experience, but I guess you being maybe outside of your, your comfort zone in a certain regard, it, it helped you push yourself, right? And it helped you bring out some new characteristics that you weren't used to before, which is tremendous ultimately. So when we now look at the next phase of your career, Andy, you, you've been leading uh, large teams, I guess, from early in your career, but also now in the software arena as well. So what constitutes great leadership? I almost want to get really specific on that with you knowing that you've been able to kind of see this from a very very unique perspective help us unpack what defines great leadership well the first thing is i would say is i'm not sure i'm i'm necessarily qualified to to give you all of the answer to that you know others will judge whether i'm good or not i I can give you a perspective and i think you know the first one is as a leader you know 
our, our job is to not, I say again, our job is not to have the monopoly of ideas. Our job is to bring a team together in an environment, in a culture, create the space for a culture to grow. Ideally, you want to bring people together with, with different strengths. Diversity in all its shapes and sizes is incredibly important. It's lovely to see that that's now starting to get the exposure that, that it should have got many, many years ago. But as a leader, bringing those people together with different strengths creating an environment where everybody has a voice, where everybody feels that, that their voice, their views can be heard, and then working with people to understand, hey, what are we going to invest in? How does that inform our strategy? And how do we get comfortable with saying no to good ideas? Because sometimes you can't do everything you might like to do. Sometimes you might have a cracking idea, but you've got other priorities right now. And you've got to get comfortable, I think, with putting those things in a parking lot and saying, that's a great idea, not now, but let's revisit maybe in a quarter's time. So for me, you know, the starting point is is the team you build around you. I am incredibly lucky at High Spot. I am surrounded by a really, really wonderful team, not just here in EMEA, but also I feel stretched, I feel challenged, but I also feel unconditionally supported. And I think as a leader, if you can create that for your people, you'll start to see them go above and beyond. You'll start to see one of the measures I like to, to, to look at is discretionary effort. That's people going above and beyond, even when nobody is going to look, even when nobody is going to find out, they still make that extra effort because they want to make things work. So for me, I think it's that team, it's creating that culture. And then, you know, no surprises, it's a, it's a deliberate and very visible commitment to coaching. My job as a leader is to get out ahead of my people and remove obstacles and then support them in working through the challenges that they have. My job is to be there when they have questions, not necessarily to provide answers, but to help them go through a thought process that helps them uncover their answers. And, you know, when you do that, when people come up with their own ways of solving things, the commitment levels you get to resolving it are way better than when you say, no, you should go and do this, go and do it now. I love the framing in, in all of that. And you've got got away with words, as they like to say, which, which is awesome. Your career now at this point, having been a, a leader for an extended period of time, certainly in the software arena, and as we've explored before, at the very beginning, it sounds like certain things happened to you by circumstance, i.e. you ended up in recruitment. I want to understand if there was a point where actually your career became very much more about design, i.e. I am heading in this direction. I'm going to find a way to this role within this period of time and more. Just unpack that for us. <laughs> I'd love to tell you that I had a master plan for the last 15 years. Fact is, Alex, I didn't. There, there were a few choices along the way. As I say, if I was to go back 20 years, one of the things I, I think I could have done a little bit better would be a little bit more deliberate about the people I work for. Not that I work for bad people. One or two people I learned lots of things uh, or some things about what not to do didn't make them bad people. It just helped me learn and develop my, my own style. But I think that uh, there were a couple of decisions I did make. One of the decisions was to move out of the fitness industry into technology. That was a smart move. I kind of figured that technology was here to stay. And, and you know, if you can pick those industries where the tide is rising, 
kind of all ships rise with a with a rising tide so you get the benefits of that as well as your own efforts that can then take you further so i look back on the move to it and tech as being a smart move i also look back on the move into into sas as being really beneficial for me you know over the last 15 years sas has, has really flown as a business model it's it's highly effective it's effective for the customer in terms of 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 how they can operationalize costs and amortize that cost but it's also really really good in terms of the the vendor the supplier right it's as long as you you make sure that your bucket is not too leaky when you add new customers into the top of that the volume of water increases right your growth is exponential so the move into saas was 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 also very good and maybe a third one if i may and again this is something that's come to me later in life i'm now very deliberate around the cultures within the companies that that i choose to join and i think early in my career i i didn't think that i actually had the right to choose i kind of felt that i had to somehow earn that right everybody has that right from the moment they take their first first breath their first step into a into a career so i would say to people be thoughtful about the cultures that you go to because some may find you and accelerate your career better than others those are probably going to be different for different people but be thoughtful about that along with as i said earlier and be very very selective about the manager and and who you're going to work for yeah it's it's an interesting one because i explored this topic with with oli as well around cultures and it's something that we hear come up more and more with you being a managing director and running a a notable sized team I guess there's a big responsibility that you have around what that culture looks like within your region. So what what steps do you take to become intentional about building a culture that fosters all of the behaviors and characteristics that you've spoken about? I try to be very humble in all that I do. And and look, I'm rarely the smartest guy in the room, so I've got an advantage over over some people. When it comes to culture, yeah, I I I have the title of of gm for the region but that does not mean i own the culture my job is to create the space in into which that culture grows and and the two are different and everybody me included within the business adds to that culture and takes from it every single day through the actions and behaviors that we have through the interactions we have with our colleagues do we turn up to meetings on time do we have agendas do we have clear actions do we support our colleagues when they're going through a tough time how do we interact with each other and and it's the net effect the aggregate effect of all of those little behaviors all of those interactions that is i think what then gives you your culture there are some other things we recently made a very explicit commitment to a belonging and inclusivity council so and we were overwhelmed with volunteers we targeted having 8 or 9 council members we ended up with 18 and then we've got another 20 or so general members it it just phenomenal to see and the job of inclusivity and belonging council is to speak to all of our people here in amia and then to come back to my leadership team and i and guide and advise us and help us understand what more we can do to continue to make our culture a safe space a space where people belong and for me again it's it's such a simple step but it's so so powerful because it allows me as a leader to understand what are people looking for and how can i improve the space and the opportunity for those opportunities to grow for them 
clearly a really important differential there, one that I've actually been educated on as I'm sitting here with you right now, Andy. So very, very fascinating in all of that. Now, Andy, you've been at this for two decades, right? You've been doing this a little while now. So why are you getting out of bed with this level of passion and vigor that I can sense across the table from you? What is it that's driving you? It's really simple. It's my people, the guys and girls that I work with every day. It's seeing their development. It's seeing the results that they achieve. We have quadrupled our revenues in the region in 18 months. We have seen growth in terms of people. We're now 110 people. We were around about 40 18 months ago. You see the same growth of customer numbers and the likes. But what excites me most is not necessarily those those tangible business metrics, but it's the growth of the individuals. It's seeing people earn their next challenge, getting that next role, moving from maybe being an ADR, SDR, BDR into a field role, and then seeing them get their first deals, seeing them develop the skills that are going to set them up, not only for a career in whatever role they've got, but also going to see them progress through life. So for me, it's, it's all about people. And as a leader, that's my measure of success. How are they developing? And, you know, when they leave high spot, because ultimately not all of them are going to be there for 20 years, that's just not the environment. Even if they leave high spot and they haven't gone through that career growth with us, have they gone on to bigger, better things, whatever bigger and better is for them? And if they've done that, we've succeeded in our job. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that, right? The the passion that you clearly have for your people and that knowledge and understanding that you've got a happy team, an engaged team that ultimately fosters not only your success, but the businesses and allows you to have the impact that clearly you want to have on the world, which is tremendous. Now, when we look ahead for someone like yourself, Andy, who's already achieved so much in your own life, you know, what is the journey that you want to go on now at this point? When you think about the development of Andy Champion, you know, what does a development path look like for someone of your caliber with what you have achieved? That's a really good question. I haven't probably sat and thought about that too much for for, for probably too long a time. But I, I think that actually shows me, as I think on it right here live with you, it shows me that I'm probably in a pretty good place. It shows me that I am feeling challenged. I'm feeling stretched. I'm making progress in terms of my own skills, right? Just like somebody in their first step of their career. I too am practicing. I'm too am trying to figure out how do I get out of bed and make that incremental gain. I was talking to a very good friend of mine, Abe Smith. He runs the international business at, at, at Zoom. And, you know, we were talking about those 1% gains. You know, I think 1% is, is a huge gain, but if you can get a fraction of 1% every day, you know, that's going to aggregate up over time. So I'm still going through that journey in, in, in my life. And I think for me, probably at some point over the next five years, my career, I think, will pivot. I think at, at some point I will come out of the day-to-day -day execution. And what I'd hope to do is to go back into a position where probably two things, Alex. Number one, Something to keep my mind sharp, and that might look advisory, might be board-type roles. I'd be very interested in that. How can I help companies navigate all of the different markets in EMEA that I've now amassed a bit of experience in? And then the second one is giving back. And that'll be no surprise given what we just talked about with people is like, how do I help people in their careers? How do I help them maybe learn from some of my experiences Perhaps listen to things like, hey, go find yourself a mentor. a mentor. Hey, be really deliberate about getting up every day and don't be afraid to, to fail. Little things like that that I think I, I wish I'd been told 20 years ago. So I think there'll be two dynamics there, helping people maybe early in their career and then maybe uh, 
helping some companies just to keep the wall from the door. I can't wait to see all of it unfold, Andy. I've got one more question for you. And if you listen to any episodes, then you'll know what's coming. But it's for you, if you were talking to that person out there who wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what would the best piece of advice be that you'd have for them? So if they're really smart, they'll have had a pen and paper as they listen to this, and they'll probably have written down the, the following things. Find yourself one or more mentors and be deliberate in doing that. Be very careful and selective about the managers you choose to work for. And every day, plan to do something a little bit better. Keep challenging yourself. Never, ever, ever get comfortable in what you do because as soon as you stop, others are going to overtake you. So those would be my three pieces of advice. That is another mic drop moment. Andy, have you enjoyed being here? I've loved it. Absolutely fantastic. This is one of the first times I, I wish I had a notepad and a pen in front of me live because there's honestly been so much wisdom in all of this, Andy. So I'm really, really grateful for you coming down. And I'm sure this has been extremely valuable for listeners out there. So thanks again. My great pleasure. Thank you. To anyone who's been listening out there, if you got as much value out of this as I have and you're watching this on YouTube, once again, I'd appreciate you pressing that like button, commenting, sharing and subscribing. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please, please, please write that five star review and help us to secure more reach as we move forward. On that note, we'll see you on the next one.